Well, good morning. I, uh, it is good to be back here with you. Uh, last week, it's a good week for those of us who took our trip to Canada. I look forward in a few weeks to kind of give you a more thorough update of how that trip went, but God really opened some doors for us to, to meet some great missionaries and people who are serving up in northwestern Ontario, as well as just to make a great contact with a church that uh, seems as if God might be opening a door for us to have a good, <clears throat> excuse me, sister church relationship with them and partner with them in the mission and be encouraged by them. And so lots of good things to uh, report in the weeks that come. It's just going to take a little while to collect our thoughts and, and put it all together. But thanks for your prayers, for those of you who are praying for us as we uh, embarked on that journey. But today, I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and open them to Galatians chapter 3 as we are continuing our summer series, Answering Your Questions. If, if this is your first Sunday here, let me explain to you what we're doing. Typically, we teach through books of the Bible here, and, uh, but, but I just thought it would be very beneficial for us as a church uh, for... for uh, me to ask, what questions do you have from the Bible, from our study of Luke, uh, just from, from our time together and all of our studies, and submit them in. And so questions came in, we've collected them all as a staff and divvied them out, and, and we're spending these next few weeks answering questions that came to you. And today we're dealing with this question, how do you understand the Bible and the church, and where you will eventually be in Galatians 3, verses 15 through 22. But before we jump into the study. Let me just open our time in prayer here. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you for the privilege we have of, of just spending this time around the table to be reminded of your glory, how this death has not only brought forth life, but established you and, 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 and literally made you judge of the living and the dead, and, and you were seated on a throne, and you are king, and we get to worship you for all eternity. What a great thing. Thank you for that reminder. May it just fill our hearts and our minds. And Now as we gather around your word today, God, may we just genuinely be uh, encouraged. May, may today what, the things that we, we learn from your word just open our hearts and our minds to see your glory all the more. I thank you for the privilege we have. Help us now not to be distracted, but to be focused and to seek uh, your truth. May your spirit just open our eyes, change our hearts, and conform us to the image of Jesus. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, when I, I was about 20 years old or so, I was invited to a Bible study. And this Bible study that I was invited to uh, was led by this guy who was in seminary. Went to his apartment. I didn't know him. I was invited through a friend. And uh, and I was excited about this opportunity to be part of a Bible study, a bunch of, you know, 20-somethings all gathering in this guy's apartment. He was a seminary student. We were all pumped about learning the Word from him. And, uh, and he opened the study with a question. I do not remember the question that he asked. But I do remember that whenever a question's asked, I'm always like the first guy to answer it, right? I'm just yapping all the time, talking. So I, so I throw off an answer. And, uh, and I, I just remember I was studying the, the book of James, and so I just started answering out of the book of James, just firing my answer. And this guy cuts me off. 
And he's just rebukes me in front of the room pretty harshly. He said some pretty strong things that I actually wouldn't say from this pulpit. They were pretty strong. And, uh, and you know, basically telling me that I was stripping the scriptures of all their meaning and, 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 and you know, just using graphic language of all these horrible things I was doing to the Bible. And, uh, and, and as he was unfolding this, I'm, I was just like, what? What does that mean? Why are you saying all this to me? And, uh, and I, I, you know, my heart was beating fast, and I was just like, I'd never really been rebuked in that way before in a Bible study. And, uh, and then he said, you know, the book of James does not apply to the church. And he's like, that's where you're wrong, and you're a heretic. I mean, it was just like, whoa, never heard that in my life. Never, ever, ever heard anybody say, you know, that a book of the Bible doesn't apply. I mean, just dumbfounded. So I go to my pastor, and I say, hey, I'm in this Bible study with this guy, and I answer out of the book of James, and, and he tells me, you know, all these horrible things, and that I'm you know, doing this horrible thing wrong. I'm like, and then he told me the book of James doesn't apply to the church. Could you explain that to me? So he proceeds to explain to me this guy's position and where he had come from in, in handling the scriptures. And, I, and he began to explain his, 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 what we'd call his hermeneutics, his way he approached the study of the Bible. It was a whole new world for me, and that unlocked a door for me to realize something. Uh, there are a lot of different ways people view the Bible, right? And a lot of different ways people take the Bible. And you can be in one situation and share something and somebody says, that's wrong, you can't say it that way, or that doesn't apply, or this applies this way, or that applies that way, or you listen to the radio and you'll hear some preacher say something and then another preacher say something else. Lots of different views out there on how to handle the Bible. And maybe some of you have maybe been in a situation like that where maybe somebody's challenged you or, or maybe you've heard something on the radio and you thought, where, where did this come from? How do I deal with this? And what I want us to do today is we're going to tackle that question. We're going to get into that issue today of, of how do we understand the Bible. The, the, that, that question that has come in, in, in these series of questions that we've taken, really tackles this issue. How do we understand the Bible, and, and how do we understand how to read it, how to understand it, how do we understand our role as Christians in the church, How do we take issues like the Old Testament and the rules given to Israel? How do we understand all of that? And we're going to tackle that question today. And I think that's an important question to tackle for a few reasons. I think it's important to tackle because I think as, first of all, just we're exposed to a lot of different teaching on the radio, on the internet. We're going to hear things. Things come up. And I think it's important to have an understanding of the different worldviews and positions And I think that's important to catch. I also think it's important for us to know the frameworks that we come to the Bible with. Where where do I stand on these issues? How do I interpret this? If I were to tell you this, if I were to say, listen, I'm never going to give my son a haircut because the Bible teaches against haircuts. How would you respond to that? You'd probably say, what? What are you talking about? Bible? Well, the only haircut ever given in the Bible caused a man to get his eyes gouged out. Right? Samson. So, Samson gets a haircut, gets his eyes gouged out. Therefore, no haircuts. What would you say to that? You'd have a reaction to that. 
Some of you are taking notes. Don't take notes. That was a joke. Okay? <laughs> How do you understand that? Whatever reaction that you had to that reality, whatever reaction you had, reveals your framework, how you're going to understand the Scripture. So we're going to tackle that today. I'm hoping that as we do this, a few things would, would happen as we tackle this question. First, I'm just hoping that it helps you understand the way people read the Bible and the different views that are out there, because I'm going to show them to you. I also hope that maybe it can help you settle in on, on, on where you stand and how, you, how we should understand the Bible and the church and all that. But I'm also hoping something else, which might seem totally disconnected, and hopefully I can connect a dot for you at the end. One of the ways to really understand the Bible is to understand the heart of God and the mission that he's on in the world. And if you could comprehend what God's doing in the world, it actually helps the Bible make sense. And so as we go through this, I hope you start to pick up the heart of God and the mission that God is on and the, the mindset of God so that as, as we go through this, as you capture, you'll get a capturing of that heart and that will help you just fall in love with God and his mission all the more. So let's do this. Let's begin by, by tackling the question. Now, you can see on your outline the question. It says, how do, how do we understand the Bible and the church? Let me kind of explain to you where that question came from. Uh, a question came in specifically asking, does the gospel of Luke actually apply to the church today? Somebody asked that question. Somebody, they had heard something on the radio that said it didn't apply, and they want to know, does it apply? We've had questions, how do we know how to understand what's there and, and in the gospel? How do we understand these truths? And what is the relationship between the church and the teaching of the church and the teaching in the Old Testament to Israel? So these are questions that came in. I took them, I grouped them, and grouped them under this one general question, how do you understand the Bible and the church? Now, I will tell you this, that question is what seminaries spend a whole semester unpacking, right? I mean, you could spend 13 weeks on that topic. So, what can I do in 40 minutes, 38 minutes on this topic, right? So, so I know one thing. There's a lot that's going to be left on the table on this conversation, a lot. But here's what I do want to do for us today. I want to drill that question down even further to one central thing that you have to get answered before you can start answering questions about Israel, church, books of the Bible, all that. There's even, a, a, we can take this question, how do we understand the Bible church, and drill it down one step further. And what I'm going to do is drill it down one step further, down to that one essential question. We're going to unpack that question, then answer that question. And then from there launches uh, how do we understand Luke and the church and all that, okay? And that one central question that I'm going to reduce it down to is this. What is the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament? How do they relate to each other? When I look at the 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament, how do they relate to each other? There's the question that we're going to answer. When we answer that question, when we answer that question, we can then begin to understand whether or not the Gospel of Luke or the, or the book of James applies to us. And we'll begin to understand the relationship between the church and Israel if we can answer that one question. 
So that's what we're going to do today. Now, let me kind of just, in terms of unpacking that question for you this morning, let me just tell you that there are five different views out there on understanding the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I don't want to bore you by you know, spending a lot of time on these five, because some of you might be getting this glassy look like, oh no, it's going to be a lecture. But, but I'm going to try to kind of zip through this quick enough so that you'll pick it up, and I think you'll find this helpful. But there are five different views, and we're going to put them right up here on the screen. Okay, There are your five different views. Now, you'll notice something with these five different views. They're put in an arc. And the reason why is you don't... People don't just hold to like one or the other or the other like you have to choose one of the five. It's within a range. It's within a range. And that's why it's put in an arc like that. Meaning that, that sometimes people can be sitting right here or somewhere over here. And so what I'm going to do is just roll us around the range of the five different views to help you understand the five different ways that people view the, the relationship between the Old Testament and New Testament. You will find as I unpack these things... It will help you understand the different preachers you'll hear on the radio or different preachers you might pick up on the internet or on TV. You'll get a chance, as I unpack these, to say, oh, that's why this person preaches it this way. That's why they say what they say. So it'll give you some insight, make you a better listener here. Here are the five different views. Ready? The first view right here, down here, says complete continuity. What that means is that some people see that there is absolutely zero distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So if there is a law given to the, to the nation of Israel, that law should apply right here in the United States. There is absolutely no distinction. If you read something here in the Old Testament, it has to be right here. In the, it never, ever goes away. No distinction. So some people would read, and they would read through some law, and they would say, that needs to be the law in our land, because that's what the law says. Complete continuity. No distinction. Now, you move up the curve away from complete continuity, and I know this seems a bit academic. This is an academic chart. apologize for that. You have what, they, what can be called primary continuity, secondary discontinuity. What does that mean? It means this, that when somebody, is, when somebody holds to that position, they say everything in the Old Testament stays unless... The New Testament says it goes away. So you're reading through laws, and it says, okay, don't eat pork. But then you read in Acts chapter 10, God says to Peter, you can eat pork. They would say, okay, the New Testament took that one away. Therefore, that's the one we don't apply. So when you're reading your New Testament, you're looking to see what it's taking away from the Old Testament, whatever it takes away, then it's gone. But if it hasn't taken away, it's there. And you apply it across the board. So a lot of times you'll see people who are down in this range. Some of the churches that, that hold to these positions will have things like priests and, and, and praying through priests and praying through these intermediaries. Why? Because in the Old Testament, there's all kinds of intermediaries between God and man, right? So they're going to insert those into the church. I need a priest who prays to a saint, who prays to God for me on my behalf. I need all of these pieces between me and God because all those pieces were there in the Old Testament. See, so that's a continuous view. I'm pulling it in. 
But now you move up the curve a little bit more. You guys hanging in there? You really feel like you're in class, don't you? There'll be a test on this next Sunday, so okay, your grade will be determined by this. Okay. You have this one, both continuity and discontinuity. What this is saying, okay, you can probably figure it out. There are some things that are traced all the way through, and there are just some things that are just done away with. And the way you figure it out is you can just kind of see the changes that happen, and you're looking for the points of change that go on. And so you're finding things that, that do carry on, and you're also seeing things as they naturally end, naturally ending. So you see it just softens up, more discontinuities entering in to the phase. Now, you move around over here. What do you have? Primary discontinuity, secondary continuity. The exact opposite of this one. This one, primary continuity, says, I'm keeping it unless the Old Testament, or unless the New Testament gets rid of it. This one says, I'm throwing it away unless the New Testament keeps it. See the change? So, I'm not applying anything from the Old Testament unless the New Testament says you should keep it. So the New Testament does reference all Ten Commandments at some point or another. Therefore, I keep the Ten Commandments. So unless the New Testament says something about it, it's gone. And then we got one more. You can figure this last one out, right? Kind of everything goes, right? It's like you're dividing it up into a million little pieces to the point where now I can only read, if I'm a, if I'm a, a Gentile Christian, I can only read the letters of Paul because he was the apostle to the Gentiles. Other than that, everything goes. That guy who rebuked me was here. Complete discontinuity. James was a Jewish leader writing to a Jewish church, and I'm a Gentile, therefore I shouldn't be reading a letter written by a Jewish leader to a Jewish church. So he just had it all divided up. Everything goes, right? So those are the, the different positions that are out there. And you can pick up on these positions based on, uh, you know, just that little summary hopefully will help you understand the way different people understand the Bible, how to apply it. Now, here's what I want to do. Let's now get to the answer to this question, which is the right one. Now, I want to just, I'm going to give you all my qualifiers. If I could talk real fast like a commercial, this would be coming out really fast, you know. Okay, here's the qualifiers. Number one, um, there are believers in all those camps, right? We are not making judgment value statements about somebody where they're at. I could probably go in my whole journey on that little chart there and say, um, you know, this was 1978 in my life. And this is, you know, I could probably track it by years where I was and somewhere in that curve and have moved around that curve. So, so people are, are learning and growing and, and, and we can't, <coughs> excuse me, get in the way of that process. So, so by talking about this, we're not trying to put out a condemnation on people. The goal here isn't to say, this is the right one. Now go out and be an evangelist of this position. And beat people up if they don't hold to this position. That's not our goal. The goal is to say, let's pursue this. Let's just try to at least acknowledge the frameworks that we have. Let's challenge our frameworks. Let's grow in it. But if, it, if, if truth doesn't lead us to loving people, we have not understood the truth, Right? If it's not deepening my love for people, then I missed it. So just remember that. Truth has to lead to love or you haven't gotten the truth yet. 
So this is not designed to rally us around a position so that we could be all arrogant and condescend and look down on people. Okay? So let's get to the answer. My goal here is I want to give you my position, the position of our church, and then I'm going to show you in Scripture where, where, where we get that position from and then, uh, and then start to apply that a little bit. So where's the position? Position of myself as a preacher, position of our church, is that top of that arc. Continuity and some discontinuity. There are some things that track all the way along from Genesis to Revelation, and there are other things that God did at a particular point in time to help make that one thing that he's tracking all the way through come to fruition. So we do acknowledge some discontinuity. We acknowledge some continuity. Okay? Now, where do we get this from? I'm going to show you a passage of Scripture, a very strong, profound passage of Scripture in Galatians chapter 3 that, uh, that I believe where Paul does this. Paul gives a continuous understanding, and he shows areas that are, are continuous, and then he gives a discontinuous view, and he lays them both out there. So here's what we're going to do now. We're going to jump into Galatians 3, and in jumping into this passage, we're going to, in one sense, kind of press the pause on this little seminary lecture and just dive into the text and just unpack, enjoy our swimming in the pool of Galatians 3 for a while. Then we'll come back out and, and, and bring it back and connect the dots to this little lecture I just gave you here. So, so let's, let's look at this text. In Galatians, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Galatia because the gospel was preached there. The people trusted in the gospel of Jesus. And then these false teachers came in, and they were of a completely continuous bent, which they said, okay, yes, you, you've got to place your faith in Jesus, absolutely, without question. But if you want to be pleasing to God, you also have to follow the law. Man, you've got to get circumcised. You've got to start following these rituals. You've got to start following these ceremonies. If you don't follow these ceremonies and these rituals, then your faith in Christ is meaningless. Paul was just livid about this. And he wants to say, no, 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 no. You are saved by faith in Christ. You are sanctified by faith in Christ. Everything is faith in Christ. And he wants them to see this because he says, especially in chapter 5, as you place your faith in Christ, man, you're filled with the love of Jesus. And when you love, you fulfill the whole law. So he said, I'm not trying to do away with the law. I'm just trying to say you can't follow the law in the flesh. You've got to be in Christ. And the only way to follow the law is to be filled with his love. And the only way to get his love is to walk by faith. That's it. So I'm not going to layer these, these rituals on top of you. That's, that's the wrong way. So this is his argument. What he needs to do, though, is he's got to explain something. And what he has to explain is the tension between two Old Testament characters. There are two Old Testament characters that are actually in tension with each other. You don't know that, but they are. They, they weren't really in tension, but, but to the Judaizers, they were in tension. The two Old Testament characters are Abraham and, can you guess who the other one might be? Just take a guess. Just keep you involved. What? Moses. Good, yes. Abraham and Moses. Abraham, right, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Moses comes along and says, here's a whole boatload of rules you got to follow. Now, what do you do with both these characters? How do you understand this 
message? How do I take all the boatload of rules that Moses gave me and hold it up against the fact that Abraham believed God and was counted him as righteous? How in the world could he be righteous just by faith? And Moses says, you've got to be righteous by doing all this stuff. Their intention, right? That tension is the same tension that exists between the Old Testament and the New Testament. What do I do with the Old Testament? What do I do with all these rules? So what Paul is going to do is he's going to try to explain that Abraham and Moses are not in tension with each other at all. We just got to understand what they're doing. And that's what Galatians chapter 3 is about. The first thing that he does in Galatians 3 is he, he's going to show how the message of salvation is the continuous message from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. We'd say it this way, that the message of salvation, that Adam was saved the same way that I'm saved. Abraham was saved the same way I'm saved. Moses was saved the same way. This is the continuous message of the whole Bible. And we're going to cling to that, fight for that, preach that, proclaim that. That's what Paul's saying. This is going to be his first point. And now, he sets it up here in verses 15 through 18 by showing this is the continuous message of the Bible. This is what, what, is, what, 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 what is held all the way through. And, and in verse 15, he's, he's giving an illustration. Look at verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, what's he saying? Very simple illustration. Let me illustrate the illustration for you. Here's the illustration of the illustration. You go to a car dealership to buy a car. You sit down with the car dealer. How much will this car cost? Let's say the car dealer says $19,000. And you say, okay, is that everything? The car dealer says, yes. And you say, okay, would you put that in a contract? The car dealer says yes. He writes out a, car, a contract. Tax, title, licensing fee, everything, $19,000. It's right there. It's all, you, you got Jeff reads it through. Jeff says yes. This contract says $19,000. He signs it. You sign it. Just don't overthink this question. How much are you paying for the car? Right. Thank you for not overthinking it. Okay, $19,000. Okay. Some of you go, that's a trick question. Twenty-two five? No. <laughs> no, no. Nineteen thousand. Why? You have a contract that says nineteen thousand dollars. Now what happens if the car dealer walks in and says, okay, you owe me twenty-two five? You're gonna say, I got a contract that says nineteen thousand, right? Now he says, oh yeah, yeah, I know, that's what yours says. But after I gave you your copy, I went and wrote over a couple things in mine and added a couple things to the contract. Is what he added right? No. Can he do that? No. Once the contract is signed, that's the price, correct? Simple point. That's what verse 15 is saying. Now, why is verse 15 saying this? I know we're in the middle of a thought, so let me explain to you why he's saying this. God says to Abraham in Genesis 12, hey, man, I'm, you know... I'm calling you out of, out of you. I'm going to give you a new land. I'm going to do all of this stuff. I'm going to make this promise. And, and through your seed, I'm going to bless the whole world. In Genesis 15, Abraham says, Hey, God, is there any way to kind of confirm this promise? I believe it. 
But is there any way that you could confirm this promise? God says, absolutely there is. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to grab some animals. I need you to get a three-year-old heifer. I need you to get a three-year-old female goat. I need you to get a three-year-old ram. I need you to get a turtle dove. I need you to get a young pigeon. So Abraham gets all those animals. God says, here's what I need you to do. I need you to cut them in half. He cuts them in half. I'm really glad I don't live in the Old Testament day, seriously. <laughs> I just, cutting animals in half just is not appealing. Anyways, just a random thought. And, and nothing to do with the sermon, but this is, every time I read that, it grosses me out. He cuts the animals in half. Put one animal on one, you know, and then take the two halves and separate them, make a little aisleway between them. Why is he doing that? In that day, you didn't sign a contract with somebody. If I was going to go into a business deal with you, what we'd do is we'd take those animals, we'd cut them in half. You and I would walk through the, the little aisleway created by the animals together. And here's what we'd be saying. We'd be saying this. If I violate the contract, do to me what we just did to those animals. Pretty gruesome, right? Kill me. Right? I'm putting my life on the line. Which means that once you walk through it, it's like signing that paper at the car dealer. You're committing to it. So God says, listen, I am going to bless the nations of the world through your seed. Absolutely. That's what I'm going to do. And you want proof. Cut these animals in half. He cuts the animals in half. Then Abraham falls asleep. He goes to sleep, and God himself passes through the animals. He walks through them. What was God saying? God was saying, I am guaranteeing this is the way blessings coming to the world. And by passing through those animals, it can never change. God just signed a contract. Okay, you got to catch that. That's what he's saying in verse 15. Once a contract is signed, it cannot change. So God said, blessing comes to the world through your seed. If you believe in that seed, you get the blessing, you get the righteousness. This is the way it cannot change because I just walked through the animals. You tracking with the point? This is the continuity part of the Bible. Now the question comes, who is the seed? Where is the blessing? Look at verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. He's saying, now God said, through your offspring, singular, not plural, singular, through your offspring, blessing is going to come. Now the question is, who's the offspring? Paul's making a very simple point. Let me just state it in, in the way we'd say it today. God did not say blessing was going to come to the world once you become a Jew and follow all the Jewish rules. Judaism is not the path to righteousness. That's how many took it in that day. They said, I'm an offspring of Abraham. I'm a Jew. I'm of his line. And if you want to get blessed, Mike, you've got to come join me in Israel. And Paul says, nope, wrong. It's not offsprings. One child. And that's the Messiah. And if Mike wants to be blessed, he's got to be part of the Messiah. So he's saying that's the continuity part. God had planned to bless the world, not through the law, but through Christ. 
This is the promise made. So this is what he says. So the point is, the blessing's coming through one. Now he unpacks it further. Look at verse 17. This is what I mean. So Paul says, here's, here's my point. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. You see his point there. You know what the word ratified means. Contract signed. So he's saying God had signed a contract that he was going to bless the world through one seat, one offspring of Abraham, the Messiah. And that's where blessing, that's where righteousness, everything was going to come through him. When God added that law, he was not then adding, layering something on top of that contract. He wouldn't do that. He signed the contract. So what came 430 years later was not intended to do away with it. So you can't say that God made a promise to Abraham and then came along hundreds of years later and added to it the requirements of the law. That would say God's unethical. So, verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. If, it comes by, if righteousness and all of this comes by the law, then what? It's no longer a promise. It's no longer grace. It's no longer faith. And what is continuous from the very beginning is that God promised to send a seed to crush the head of the serpent. God promised to send a seed to bless the nations of the world. God promised to send a seed to be a prophet of God, to speak the very word of God. God promised to send a seed to rule on the throne of David for all eternity. God promised to send this one who would do all of this. And what he's called us to do, the message from the very beginning, from Adam to the end of the age, is will you trust that by faith? Paul's saying that's the message of the Old Testament. There's the continuity. Now we come in, where's the discontinuity then? Where's the discontinuity? Where, how do we understand our Old Testament? This is where the discontinuity comes in. So let's look at verses 19 through 22. Now we get to the discontinuity. And this is not real complicated once you see Paul's point. Look at verse 19. Why the law then? Great question. Why would he add the law 430 years later if all he needed people to do was trust in the seed of Abraham? By faith, why wouldn't he just send people out proclaiming this message that one is coming? Why do all that he did in the nation of Israel? Now, here's the answer to the question. It's right there in 19, but before we answer it there in 19, just stop. I think you could figure out the answer even without reading verse 19. Especially if you're a parent, I know you could figure this out. When your kids are two years old, do you just show up to a park and say, go play, come back in four hours? I'm going to go to the store. I'll come back in a few hours. Do you do that? No. You would never do that. Do you say to your four-year-old, eat whatever you want, whenever you want? You get to pick whatever you want, and what, if that's what you want for breakfast, that's what you could have for breakfast. Would you do that? No. Why not? They cannot handle it. Right? Ice cream wins over cauliflower most of the time. Am I right? 
The reason why I say most of the time is because there's going to be some kid who's going to say, I hate ice cream. You know, I'd rather have cauliflower, right? So I'm going to acknowledge the one kid who doesn't like ice cream and who will pick cauliflower over ice cream. But the reality is children don't have the maturity to pick and to think what's right. They don't have the maturity to figure out stranger danger. They don't have the maturity to even understand what it means to be hit by a car, right? They don't have the capacity. So why the law then? Look at verse 19. First thing he says, it was added because of transgressions. People are sinners. So one is coming who's going to bring righteousness and salvation and peace and restore relationship with God. What do you do until he comes? How do you set the table for him to come? Well, you have to realize something. Men and women do not do what's right all the time. Right? I had to teach, right? You've heard me say this. I had to teach my kids how to eat. I had to teach them how to get dressed. I had to teach them how to tie their shoe. One thing I never had to teach them how to say was the word no. Ever. Right? There was never a moment when they were reaching for something and, and then they said, oh, no, no, I can't do that. And I said, no, no, no. No, the way you rebel is you keep reaching for it. Right? So, so come on. I want to teach you how to rebel. Okay? Reach for it. No, Dad, that would be sin. No, seriously. Reach for it. Come on. No, Dad, that's unrighteousness, right? right? I didn't have to teach him to do that. Everything else we had to teach him except how to sin. So what do you do with people who are sinners? It's the same thing you do with your children. We give them bedtimes. We pick their clothes for them. We pick their, their food for them, right? When they're little, we just rule their life. That's what he's saying. It was added because of transgressions. It was added because people did not have the maturity, the ability to follow God. God was going to use these people to bring about this Messiah, and in order to protect them, he had to put them in a little box called the law. But notice how long the law was to stay for. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made was put in place until, there's a discontinuous statement, right? It was put in place until the promised one. Why? Because when the promised one comes and, I, and he does his work on the cross and I trust in it, his spirit comes upon me and what else comes upon me? Galatians 5 says his love. And when I have his love upon me, what do I fulfill? The whole law. I can do everything God wants because my heart has been changed. My heart has been changed. But until that day happens, until that Messiah comes, there has to be this law. Just like with my children, as they get older, I start to allow more freedom as I notice their heart becoming more mature. And now they can tell the difference. They know to look both ways before they can cross the street. Once they learn that, let them go. Some of you that are 20 and your parents are still on top of you, you're probably not mature enough yet. You might want to work on some maturity, right? That's the same thing with Christ. The law is there until Christ comes and changes their hearts. Then they get love. So it's added. It's added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise is made. Notice, now he's talking about the law, and it was put in place through angels by intermediaries, by an intermediary. What's he saying there? He 
He's saying, I want to show you why the law isn't the best way to be made righteous. Why is the law not the best way to be made righteous? Because when the law came, there were angels around the mountain, and, 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 and Moses couldn't see God directly, and, 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 and there's all these, these, these realities of, of, of what God had done through these angels. You could read in Acts 7, and in Hebrews 2, it talks about this. Basically this, Moses was not seeing God face to face. Moses was not having direct communion with God. There was smoke and angels and things between Moses and God. And then Moses has to come down, and he delivers the law. And he's the one who's being the arbiter between the people and God. And when they sin, he goes up to the mountain and intercedes on their behalf. And he's saying, listen, that's the problem with the law. God isn't dealing with your heart directly. God's got all these things between you and him. That was the issue with the law. It can't save all it really can do is constrain you. That's it. It just can constrain you. But it's not the way God is going to change your heart. And so he goes on to explain it even further. Verse 20. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. He's saying an intermediary is all these things between you and God. But when the one God is going to deal with your life, one God is going to deal with your heart. And that one God's going to do it through Jesus, the God-man, who's going to deal with you directly. These laws are no longer the issue now because they're secondary. A bedtime does not make my child responsible, but shepherding their heart does. Picking what clothes they wear, what food they eat, does not make my child responsible. Shepherding their heart does. The law could not make these people righteous but Jesus did, can, and does. Because he can deal with their hearts. So he then says in 21, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? No, certainly not. If the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law, right? If the law could actually change your heart, sure, then it'd be contrary. But it's not. It's not. It's given for a completely different reason. So then Paul says, Here's how I read the scriptures. But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So when I read the law and I read the Old Testament, I see my sin. I see the fact where I need to be constrained. I see my rebellion and it drives me to the seed of Abraham for salvation. So there it is. Now there's our text. Let's, let's, let's tie this all together now. What do we do with this? This continuity, discontinuity. How do I understand my Old Testament, New Testament? This text, I think, is very profound to help us understand where the Bible comes together and where it has its points of discontinuity. So let me just give you some points of application here. Let me just kind of give you uh, what I think are, are basically what I would call Paul's hermeneutic, Paul's understanding of the Old and the New Testament, or the Old... By the way, testament is just the word covenant. So you could, when you say Old Testament, you're saying Old Covenant. When you say New Testament, you're saying New Covenant. So how Paul understood the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Okay, five things. Number one, I believe Paul understood this. This is what drove him. Mankind was bound in sin. When sin entered the world, it entered everybody. No one was righteous, not even one. No one could do anything right. So he took that as, a, as an operating system. When he views man, he views him as a sinner. And, and, and that helped him understand the law and Christ. Both of those issues. Number two, 
He believed God promised to bring blessing to the world through the seed of Abraham, who is Jesus. I think Paul even saw it even further than the seed of Abraham. I think Paul saw it in the promise made to Eve. Through you is one going to come who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And I think he saw it even in the promise given to Moses when Moses is told a prophet's going to come who's going to speak the word of God to you. And I think he saw it in David when God said one is coming who will rule on a throne forever for all eternity and I think he saw it in the promise made to Joshua, or, yeah, to, to, uh, Joshua in the book of Zechariah, the high priest, when God says, I'm going to bring this one who's going to cleanse you from head to toe. I think he saw that. He said, this is the one I'm waiting for. This is the one. God made a promise. God, third point, instituted the law because all men and women are sinners. They need to have the protection of the law. I like to say it this way, the law kept things from getting as bad as they could have gotten. When I set rules in my home, it doesn't change my kid's heart, but it does protect them from allowing their sin to go as far as it could go. And when I remove those rules without shepherding their heart, then I'm just saying, go follow the depravity of your heart. Now, the rules don't change their hearts. I've got to bring the gospel to my children's hearts. But the rules sometimes, when they're younger, bring a constraint so that I can shepherd their heart so that it doesn't get as bad as it could get. It, does, it, it, it protects them. I think Paul saw the law that way. Four, the Old Testament reveals the depth of our sin and drives us to Jesus. And five, Jesus came to bring the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. He now is the one that has brought all of that hope, salvation, blessing, conquering Satan, the Word of God, all of those promises made of that one who's going to come. Okay, just a few more points here, and we'll wrap it up here. Then what does that mean in terms of how I read my Bible? How do I read my Bible with a continuitous slash discontinuitous view? Let me just give you some very simple points on that. And then I will tie it into the church, understanding of the church. First, when I read the Old Testament... I'm looking for signs and the development of the promise made to Abraham. I'm looking, I'm seeing that thread, the promise made to Adam and Eve, the promise made to, to Abraham, the promise made to Moses, the promise made to David, the promise throughout all of the book of Zechariah, all of the, the, all of the, the minor, major and minor prophets. These promises keep developing and showing me this one is coming, this one is coming, this one is coming. Right? He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And that's the, the glory of Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. He's here! He came! That's the joy of it. And so when I read my Old Testament, I want to look for the description of that one. And, and, and I begin to learn that he's going to conquer Satan and he's going to bless the world. And, he, and he's going he's to bring the very word of God in clarity and fullness. And He's going to rule the nations. He's going to judge the wicked. He's going to bring justice to this world. He's going to rescue those who are, who, who are hurting and in bondage. He's going to restore order where there's disorder. He's going to, for those that have been oppressed, he's going to lift them up. And those who've been haughty, he's going to drive them down. That's all in the Old Testament. Just see it. It's there everywhere. And when I read my Old Testament, I'm looking for that. I'm, there's the continuity I'm looking for. But when I read my Old Testament, second point, when I read the Old Testament law, I'm looking for the way that it reveals my sin. 
and the righteous standard of God. So I can read through Leviticus and see all the rules about everything that's there and begin to realize sin has touched every part of my life. And I need a Savior. I need this one who's going to bring all this. Now, when you read the, the Old Testament with that lens, with those two lenses in mind, it's really cool because when you begin to see all the descriptions of Jesus and, and the Messiah and the one who's coming, and then you begin to start processing the law through the lens of showing you your sin, you begin to see how all those things that are said about Jesus bring hope and peace and, and resolve all the conflict that reading the law to showing you your sin brings you, reveals. You get, you get conviction and hope running together if you read the Old Testament that way. So when I read to my New Testament then, when I read my New Testament, I'm looking for how Jesus fulfilled the promise made to Abraham. And to, you can keep going to Adam and Eve and to Moses and all these promises. Because the Gospels are thou showing, hey, look, here's where he conquered Satan. Look. Here's where he's bringing justice to the oppressed. Look, here's where he's bringing blessing to the nations. And on and on, all those things, you can see them there. And when I read my New Testament, lastly, I'm looking for ways that my heart is to be transformed to walk in the righteousness of God. Now I begin to realize the, new, the, the, old, the old Testament law says, don't murder. But Jesus starts saying, hey, let's talk about your anger problem. And the Old Testament law says, don't steal and Jesus comes along and says, now, now I want to start dealing with your heart. You know, you're a covetous person. I want to deal with that. And the Old Testament law says, don't, don't commit adultery. And, and Jesus comes along and says, listen, I want to talk about lust now. Let's deal with that. And suddenly, what am I finding? That Jesus is shepherding my heart. And when I read my New Testament, I begin to realize it's dealing with my heart. And it's beginning to allow me to fulfill the law. So the implication of this then is that when I see it through the work and the mission and the plan of God, of how God's bringing the Messiah to the world, it all makes sense. And then I begin to realize something about the church, and I'll say this lastly, and I'm tossing a big bomb at the end here because the church is like this whole other big topic, right? Political stuff, future of Israel, all that. I'm leaving all that off the table. And I, just one thing I'm going to say about the church then. The church then is the flower that sits upon the stem of Israel. God did this wonderful thing in this nation to bring about a Messiah, and then it flowered into the body of Christ. Some people in Israel said, we don't want that flower. We want a different flower. And Jesus said, you're cursed. But others said, that's the flower we want. I don't see Israel and the church in, 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 in competition with each other. I don't see the church doing away with Israel. I see the church being the flower that came out of the seed and the stem of what God did in that nation. And they're connected to each other. They're connected. But the flower is Christ and his body. It's the Messiah. It's the Messiah. So that's how it all puts together. So those are some thoughts. How do we land this plane? I hope one thing. As you study your Bible and you see Jesus, you see your sin, what I hope you would do is begin to have one point of application of everything that I said. And it's this. If you go to the scriptures and you say, God, 
change my heart to cause me to love you and love others. You'll never be wrong in your study of the scriptures. You'll never be wrong. And so as you're going through it, say, Jesus, man, I want to see you and your glory and your righteousness. Fill me with your love for the Father. Fill me with your love for others. Let this text do that work in my life so that it would challenge the motives of my heart. You'll always be moving in the right direction. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christ and all that he brings and all that he is. That he crushed the head of the serpent. That he brought blessing to the nations of the world. That he spoke your very word and made it clear and plain to us. That you've established him to be the king of kings and lord of lords. That you've established him to rule the nations on an eternal throne for all eternity. That he can wash us clean from head to toe with his righteousness. And that he came, and he lived, and he died, and he bore the wrath, and he spared us not just from our sin, but he spared us from your anger so that we could become the objects of your love. And then he sent his spirit to live in our hearts and to change us, to fill us with love for you and love for others. God, may that message just enfold us as Christians. May we read our Bible through that lens. May we understand that we as your church are now the flower, the fruit of the seed of Abraham. We are the collected group to live and walk in this reality. And may we live to make that name known through our love for you and our love for others. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.